Our reading today comes from Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. One of the things my wife and I really enjoy doing with our our spare time is going for long walks. Now, I know that this sounds kind of lame. You know, you're thinking, really? Come on, walks? That's, that's it? And the answer is yes, that's it. We like to go for long walks. We live in the, the heart of, of downtown Vancouver, and so we love just going and exploring and trying different coffee shops and just really enjoying the scenery of our, our beautiful city. And one of the things uh, we've noticed is that as we walk, it seems like every week, there's a new demonstration outside the art gallery. You know, we walk past one week and, and there's a rally for climate change or Hong Kong or residential schools or Venezuela or whatever it is. There always seems to be a, a rally or event that, that's dealing with some sort of injustice in the world, and people gather together around this event for seeing uh, this injustice dealt with. And I think the reason for this is because Vancouver prides itself on being against injustice, against uh, oppression in all of its forms. We live in a city that has this, this impulse to point out oppression wherever we see it and see it put uh, an end to it, to put an end to it. And this is good. You know, we should want to stop injustice in the world, but it's interesting, isn't it? Every week, there's a new demonstration. There's, there's a new injustice that needs to be addressed, a, a new oppression that has to be dealt with. So people gather together again and again and again and again to deal with these things. And to be honest, when we look at the world around us, it, it seems like there's always going to be another thing to fight against. You know, we might gather together around a particular cause and, and raise awareness and, and do all the right things. But then there's another problem, and another problem, and another problem, and on and on and on the problems go ad infinitum. It can feel hopeless, can't it? Seems like no matter what we do, there's always some new problem to address. So how do we put an end to this cycle? What's the solution? 
What is it that'll end the cycle of oppression once and for all so that we never even have to have demonstrations anymore? Well, as Christians, we have the answer. You might not realize this, but we have the answer to all of the oppression and injustice that we see in the world. And the answer is a person, Jesus Christ. Now, I know that's a controversial claim. You know, it can feel trite to say that Jesus is the solution to all of these big and massive issues out there in the world. You know, it feels absurd, absurd to say that Jesus is the answer, the solution for millions of children who are sex trafficked every year. It seems ludicrous, doesn't it? To suggest that Jesus is the answer to the genocide of Uyghur Muslims. I mean, how in the world, how in the world is Jesus the solution to what we see going on in Afghanistan right now? How? To claim that Jesus is the solution to all of these problems in the world feels either stupidly arrogant or stupidly naive. And I get it. I really do. I get it. But hear me out. Because what I want to do this morning is not only show that Jesus is the solution, but I want to show you how Jesus is the solution. That's the question I want to answer this morning. How is Jesus the solution to oppression? Because once we understand how Jesus is the solution to oppression, it's going to be easier for us to accept that he is the solution to oppression. So we're going to look at how Jesus is the solution And we're going to do this by looking at our psalm and breaking it down into three parts. We're going to look at our actions, our hearts, and our solution. Our actions, our hearts, and our solution. So let's jump into our text and see if we can't answer our question of how Jesus is the solution to oppression. First, let's look at our actions. Flip with me to verses 1 through 4 of our text. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So here we have God addressing Israel and judging them for all of the wicked things that they've been doing. And these wicked things, they pop out at us from this text as being fairly obvious. You know, they're judging unjustly. They're showing partiality, withholding justice from the weak. They aren't upholding the rights of the destitute. They're allowing the weak and the needy to continue in their plight. It's just a bad situation. And it's worse because this kind of behavior is the complete opposite behavior of how Israel should be. Israel was meant to be God's representative people on the earth. 
They're called by God to be a unique people among the nations around them. They're supposed to be this countercultural force that demonstrated to the world through their actions how they should live. And we see this attested to in Scripture. So, for example, in Genesis 12, Abraham, who's the father of Israel, he's told that they're to be a blessing to the nations. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. In the book of Deuteronomy, God commands Israel to be this unique people by not showing partiality to the the wealthy or the powerful in society. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And later on, in the same book, we read that Israel is to care for the fatherless and the weak. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Israel is even called to to care for the poor. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. But as we see in our psalm today, Israel failed. They didn't do these things. They began to act like the other nations that were around them, which practiced these terrible and oppressive things. Israel was supposed to be a a radically different kind of people, politically, socially, economically, and religiously, but they failed. They failed to uphold the cause of the weak and the destitute, and they began oppressing the people in their midst. They failed at their calling as God's people. They capitulated to the ways of the world around them and they became just as oppressive as the nations, as the people they were meant to be a light to. This is a big deal. God absolutely hates oppression. He hates it with a passion. In fact, I'd argue that he hates it more than we hate it here in Vancouver. And I think I can prove it. In the Bible, there's a particular story of a city named Sodom. Now, if you haven't heard the story of Sodom, uh, essentially, God decides to destroy this city because they're so wretched so evil that they've just got to go. They've got to go. God is not going to put up with their injustices anymore, and so he's going to destroy it. Now, most people, most people read the story of Sodom, and they think that, you know, God destroys the city because of this city's sexual sin. And yes, this city was bad. I don't want to get into any of the the details or the specifics here, but you can uh, flip open to Genesis 19 later and read for yourself what these people were like, and you'll see they were just nasty, terrible, awful people. But when we look at Scripture a little bit more closely, we learn that this isn't the reason God destroyed this city. Look with me at Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. 
Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. God destroyed Sodom because of their oppression. Like, poof, like wiped out an entire city because of their lack of care for the poor and the need. That's how much God hates oppression. He hates it so much, so much that he destroys a whole city for it. And knowing this, knowing this fact should make our text this morning that much heavier. Sodom, biblically speaking, was literally the epitome of everything Israel is called to stand against. And in our text today, we see Israel being judged for the exact same things that Sodom did. Israel has given up their calling. They've capitulated to the oppressive ways of the world around them, and they've begun walking opposed to God as a result. They've failed failed at their calling. So let me ask you, Christ City, how are we capitulating to the ways of our world? Look, you may not realize this, but as Christians, we're the continuation of God's people, Israel. We just like Israel, are called to be God's representatives in the world. We are positioned in our lives right now as Israel was positioned to the nations around them. When you're at your workplace, you're in the position of Israel to the nations. You represent God's ways to the people around you your family in your neighborhood is positioned as Israel amongst the nations. You're a city on a hill, a light in the darkness. We're the people of God in the midst of the world, just like Israel was. We're called to be different, to be unique, to be a blessing. And when we capitulate to the ways of the world around us, we do exactly, exactly what Israel did. You know, when we become enamored with consumerism and we start chasing after that new house, that car, that that toy, that savings account, whatever it is, whatever it is, we capitulate to the world around us and we give up practicing radical generosity for the poor. We fail, fail, just like Israel failed. When we give ourselves over to careerism, and start working longer and longer and longer hours for a promotion that earns you what, like 5% more, like nothing at all, we capitulate to the world around us. How many households are fatherless in this city just because dad cares more about his job than his family? Listen to me, Christ City. When we capitulate to the ways of the world, we lose our witness to it. This is what Israel did. This is how they failed. 
Israel's actions were a capitulation to the world. But still the big question then is why? Why do we act this way? You know, why did Israel capitulate to the nations? Why did they fall into oppression? Why? Why? Well, that's our second point, our hearts. Look with me at at verse 5 from our psalm this morning. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now, this is really interesting. Notice that the, the reasoning of the psalmist here isn't to point the finger at a particular institution or or person or, or group as being the one responsible for all of this oppression, but he points rather to the heart. He's basically saying that the reason Israel has acted this way, the reason for all of their uh, oppressive practices, it's not a problem of government, it's not a problem of social services, it's not a problem of education, but it's a problem of the human heart. And this idea is attested to all throughout the Bible. Look at Romans 1.21 with me and notice the parallel language used in our psalm today. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you see that? Distorted understanding, a darkness of heart. Again, it's an internal heart problem. Or look at Ephesians 4, 18. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Again, that that language of darkness in the understanding, of hardness of heart. You see, the problem, the problem is a heart problem. According to our psalm, according to the wider testimony of Scripture, our problem isn't some strange force out there. It's not oppressive forces in the world, but it's a problem of the human heart. And it's the problem with the human heart that leads to all of this oppression in the world. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian novelist during the Cold War era. And if you know, you know anything about Russia during the time, you know that it wasn't a great uh, place to be a, a dissenting voice in society. Now, Solzhenitsyn was quite critical of the government, and so he was thrown in a prison camp, which was called a gulag. And these were not nice places. The, the living conditions, they were just terrible. The treatment of prisoners was awful. You know, there was mass killings, disease, abuse, just terrible, terrible stuff. So if anyone, if anyone had the right to point the finger at someone else and say, they're the problem, you know, these guys over here, they're the problem. It was him. He had that right. But it was interesting. Solzhenitsyn didn't do that. Listen to what he wrote. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. 
But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The line dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart. It's a heart issue. It's not a problem out there. It's a problem in here. Now just imagine with me for a second what the world would look like if everyone recognized this. What if everyone stopped looking outside themselves for some oppressor or some place to, you know, point the finger and recognized what the big, that the big issue was in their heart? Now, wouldn't that radically shift the way that we see the world? Of course it would. Of course. You know, oftentimes I catch myself frustrated with all the different problems of the world that I read about on the news or on social media, and I want to point the finger at all sorts of different things. I want to be able to look at other people, and, and I want to be able to go, they're the problem. But if our text is right, if the Bible verses that we quoted earlier are right, if Solzhenitsyn is right, then the problem isn't them, it's me. There was once a newspaper that sent out a question to a group of famous authors and asked them simply to reply. And the question was simply this, what's wrong with the world today? Here's one of the responses they got. Dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Oppression and exploitation are only a problem out there because of the problem in here. And this distortion of the heart, this, this heart problem that afflicts every single one of us is what the Bible calls sin. And every ounce of evil in the world, every lie, every murder, every injustice, every war, every act of oppression is a result of our sinful hearts. This is why Israel fell into these oppressive practices that we read about in our passage today. It's why the nations around Israel were already doing these things before they were. And it's why we still see evil and injustice in the world today. Sinful hearts, it's us. So what's the solution? If we are the problem, what's the solution? Well, let's look at our third point, our solution, and see if we can't learn something from our text about how this might be solved. Look with me at verse 8 in our text today. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. The psalmist knows that the only solution to all of this evil is if God finally ends it through judgment. It's only, only when God puts an end to evil that the world will be made right. Yet this is obviously problematic, isn't it? 
We've just been talking about how the root of evil lies in every human heart. And if the only way for God to put an end to evil is through judgment, then simply put, that means he needs to put an end to us. We're a casualty of our own desire to see the world's evil dealt with. Let me say that again. We're a casualty of our own desire to see the world's evil dealt with. Unless, of course, God were to do something radically unexpected. What if, instead of judging us, he spared us by taking the punishment, the judgment for our sinful hearts upon himself? What if he absorbed the cost of our own evil and bore the judgment for sin in himself? Well, that would change things. We, we wouldn't have to be a casualty of our own desire to see evil dealt with. We could be spared. We wouldn't need to, to be judged because judgment would have already happened in God. And this is exactly what God did in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, God himself, in the person of the Son, willingly took the punishment, the judgment, for our sin upon himself and died so that we would never have to. Through him, through Jesus, the ledger against us has been wiped completely clean. And it's not just that we have our sin forgiven, but we also have a promise that he will radically transform our hearts. You know, God promised this in Ezekiel when he said, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And we see this promise fulfilled in Jesus when we read, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We're new creations in Jesus Christ. You know, our sinful hearts are dealt with in Jesus. They're replaced, given new affections, new desires, new purposes in Jesus. And because the heart was the very thing that was the root behind all the oppression and all the evil that we see in the world, heart transformation in Jesus is the very thing that will end oppression in the world. This is how Jesus is the solution to oppression in the world. Because he's the one who transforms sinful hearts, which are what cause oppression. Jesus deals with the root of oppression. Now, this is all great theology. It's all great thoughts kind of out there and in the ether. But what does this actually look like on the ground? You know, what does it mean to be transformed by Jesus and to begin being a light to the nations, a force for change in society? What does that look like? 
Let me tell you the story of a man named William Wilberforce. Wilberforce lived during the the 1700s in Britain. And at this time, the Atlantic slave trade was thought by everyone, everyone in society, to be completely entrenched as something that was necessary to the economy of the British Empire. Now, the slave trade is something that we can all agree was terrible. It was awful, just, just horrible and wrong. But at the time, not many would have agreed with us. It was kind of like the status quo of the time. Well, Wilberforce was a a young politician who didn't really have an active faith in Jesus at all. And during this time, he reflected on his political career as being completely me-focused. He's said to have cared only about his own distinction as a a politician. Because of this, he didn't really care about the, the slave trade at all, just like the world around him. But then, one Easter, he had an experience of spiritual rebirth, and he understood the gospel for the first time. He began to see Jesus in a completely new way, and everything, everything began to change. Wilberforce began to see the injustices of the slave trade. He began to see how how inhumane it was, how cruel it was. He began to see how oppressive it was, and he started working towards ending it once and for all. You know, seemingly impossible task at the time, but he had been so transformed by Jesus that he just had to see this thing come to an end. He wrote, So enormous, so dreadful, So irremediable did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. And so he worked. And he worked and he worked to see this happen. For years, his bills were rejected. For years, pro-slavery advocates targeted his personal character and tried to vilify him, but he would not give up. And then finally, finally, in 1807, slavery was abolished in the British Empire because of him. His work, it succeeded. How did he do this? How how did he manage to to fight for so long? How did he have the ability to care for such a great amount of time? Listen to what he wrote. It makes no sense to take the name of Christian and not cling to Christ. He clung to Christ. That's how he did it. He allowed Jesus to transform his sinful heart and he clung on tight to his Savior. He went from being an oppressor, you know, a big wig British politician who could care less about ending slavery, to a force for change in society because he understood the gospel. He clung to Christ. 
You see, it was because he had been transformed by the love of Jesus that he did this. Jesus, our solution, transformed his heart, which changed his actions. You see, Christ's city, this is how Jesus is the solution to the oppression in the world. Because he's in the business of transforming hearts. And when he transforms your heart and my heart and all of our hearts, we can then be a force for change in the world around us. We can begin to be a light to the nations. That's what Jesus does. He transforms hearts, which changes action. So let me ask you, Christ City, how is Jesus the solution to oppression. Jesus is the solution to oppression because Jesus transforms oppressors. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't judge us You didn't condemn us, but you sent your son to die in our place. Thank you, Lord, that you transform our hearts so that our actions might be changed. I pray, Lord, that we would live into this reality and be a light to the people around us. In our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, wherever it is, Lord, Help us to be a light to the people around us because of the heart transformation that you've worked in us. Father, thank you that your son Jesus deals with the root of all evil in the world and we long for the day when evil will be finally dealt with, when hearts will be transformed completely and all of those who believe in you will be enjoying this transformed heart with you and in your presence. Father, help us to live into this today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.